Hey gang, it's Harold. Here's part two of an interview with Lee Brimkin Wood and Volco. I hope you enjoy it. As it relates to Burning Blue, you mentioned John Butterfield's game, uh, games. Um, RAF in particular is, is uh, one that I've played before and admired, of course, admire all John's work. But um, coming out of uh, um, downtown and then folding in your knowledge and the games that you'd seen from Burning Blue, how, how did you shift your your view on how that should be constructed as opposed to uh, the way downtown was constructed? I initially thought it would be a simpler game and I was mistaken. Um, it ended up being quite a complicated one, although, you know, looking back on it, like a lot of my early designs, I kind of have a feeling as that, that uh, I could have simplified further. I, I'm still learning how to design games and I still haven't learned how to boil out um, a lot of extraneous detail and get down to that rich source that is uh, you know a good core game design I, I still tend to bolt on a little a few too many things um, you know maybe I'll get there maybe I won't I don't know but uh, you know the, the, the these you know you, you follow this trajectory don't you um, when you're you're learning a craft so um, Yes, when I began with the Burning Blue, uh, you know, there were many kind of impulses for choosing that as a, as a subject matter. I mean, I think one of it was, as I've just described to you earlier, was I wanted to do that thing that all the other games hadn't delivered, which was the, the, the you know, the big um, ops board experience um, done, done at the proper scale with that, that very definite focus Now the miniatures guys had been there before um, there is a, a one of the really influential books uh, on on me was a game it was a book called uh, air battles in miniature by a man called Mike Spick now when I was a, a young lad um, barely in my teens uh, Mike Spick published a set of war game rules in airfix magazine I think this was in 1976 and what he did uh, there was he actually created a, a little tactical dogfight game by taking an airfix um, plastic airplane kit and um, instead of um, you know building it all as one airplane kit he just built it in the two separate halves of the fuselage and, you know, they could then kind of plonk it down on the table sideways looking and you could kind of see the air battle in profile 
And it was, you know, it was ingenious. It was, a, it was, it was a, a great little game. And if you ever read the book, and I do recommend it, it's a wonderful beginner's manual for how to design a war game, a historical war game, because he kind of takes you through the steps from um, taking history and understanding the history and then abstracting that and then working your way through to a, a working design. Uh, the interesting thing, though, is he didn't just do more, just do one uh, war game design um, in in his book. Uh, he did that tactical game, the little sideways tactical game. Uh, but he also did one on night fighting, and uh, he also did one on the battle on the Battle of Britain, uh, uh, an operational scale game, as he called it, uh, what I would call a grand tactical game. So it was kind of one of the reference points I went to uh, initially when I started thinking about, okay, right, you know, how do I design a Battle of Britain game? And I looked at what he did and I ended up rejecting pretty much 100% of it. But it was interesting to look at somebody else's workings um, before I, I, I had begun. And, um, and I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that there are there are early tints of wing leader there, right? With the two dimensional perspective on air combat. Oh yes, I mean I've I've I stole that wholesale from Mike Spick. Yeah, <laughs> I mean I, I have absolutely no compunction of saying you know we, we are we're as game designers we lift and steal and and whatever um, from other designers. You know we we stand on the shoulders of giants and all that rubbish. Um, but uh, yeah, you know. I looked at what Spick did with his sort of uh, trying to do 11 group um, uh, as a game. And it had some interesting ideas. And again, ultimately I rejected them all. And But it did start pointing me at a number of big issues that I had to deal with in the design that I hadn't had to deal with necessarily in downtown. Um, downtown was very focused. Downtown was very focused in, in the sense of you had um, a quite localized target. Most most of the, the the targets you were hitting were essentially around two nexuses, which were um, Nexi. I don't know what's what's the plural of Nexus. Um, you know Hanoi and, and Haiphong and and areas around. Um, and then you had these kind of you know enormous great packages that would would work like a wandering monster from D&D and just kind of trundle their way across the board and just annihilating everything that, that came in their path. Uh, the Battle of Britain was 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 somewhat different to that. Um, it was a somewhat larger bit of airspace, um, much more dispersed in the, the targets that it attacked. And certainly the ability of the defenders to respond uh, was, was in many ways a lot more limited in what they, they could do. Uh, what they could they could bring to bear on the raiders. Um, so the, 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 amongst the problems that I ran in from the ran into from the very early days was the the problem of command and control. This was a really really big problem, and I could, as far as I can see, nobody nobody in any previous game had tackled this, uh, and it was an issue. It was a really big issue. Um, I think it was especially an issue for some of the, uh, the the larger scale Battle of Britain games where, you know, you get a raid coming in and it's really just a case of, you know, how much resource do I have available to throw at that raid to try and stop it? And then, you know, you throw squadrons into the mix and, you know, you hope that's enough to, 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 to biff the raid on the nose and turn it back. Um, what became clear to me as I started researching this more and more was that, that actually you didn't quite work that way uh, the technology wasn't there 
And so I, I started to, to, to dig. I, I talked to some museums. I talked to RAF Hendon, um, I, who, where the Air Historical Research is based. Um, and uh, I talked to some veterans as well. I made friends with a number of veterans. There were, these, these were guys all over the place. Some of them were in Australia. Uh, I made friends with a, with a, a decorated um, veteran based in the north of England, and we became quite good friends. And, uh, you know, I got a lot, of, a lot from these guys, a lot of interesting stuff. Uh, and a lot of those guys have passed away now, obviously, but it was, a, it was that last little gasp, I think, when you could, when they were still around and, and still able to, you, to, to have chats with them. One of the things that became very, very clear was that the high frequency radio technology that was available to the RAF at that time, which pretty much everybody, everybody was using at that time, was very, very short ranged. Uh, for example, the uh, TR9D um, high-frequency radio that was fitted to Spitfires and Hurricanes had a working range of roughly about 30 to 35 miles. Now, that's probably less than the distance from, say, um, you know, a sector airfield like Croydon and the south coast. Uh, it's, uh, it's a very, very short distance, very short distance indeed. And so I started to, to you know, because it, it came down to, again, what was this game going to play like? I mean, in a situation where you can choose all these squadrons, you know, you've got like 20 or 30 squadrons around the, you know, spotted around the south of England. Um, how, how do I tackle a raid? Do I just launch them all up and they all just go in and fly against that raid and, and, and knock it down? Well, no, it didn't work that way. And so, um, you know, the, 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 when I started looking into the radio business, that was a clue in the sense of, well, actually, these things are quite limited in range. You know, you couldn't actually control a, a squadron greater than 30, 35 miles from your, your sector station. How did you do it? Um, well, you must have had a, a radio relay or something like that. Okay, well, how did that radio relay work? So uh, I had to start doing some original research. And as far as I'm aware, I'm still the only person that's done this on for the battle of britain which was that i i actually went to the public records office in kew and i'd gotten a whiff of of something um from an old telecommunications history about something called an rt tender radio telephone tender and um which may have been a, a, a or seemed to me at the time is it sounded like it was operating somewhat as a radio relay and then what I actually did was I, I hit the, the, the mother load of, uh, of, 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 of historical detail was I found in the public records office, these enormous fat folders, which were full of flimsies, typed flimsies of um, these works orders from the uh, Royal Air Force Fighter Command to the post office, which ran the telephone system at the time asking them to put in circuits for them. And some of these first circuits were for the, the HFDF system, the Huff system, which was what they, they used to triangulate um, the positions of the squadrons on their map, because the squadrons, the radios basically broadcast little pip on a regular basis, which, um, the, uh, uh, which you, you could use listening stations to pick up and, and get the bearing on those pips. And from that, you could define where the, the squadron was and then you could, that information would go through the system and you could plot it on your map. If you ever watched the British war movie, um, Angels 1-5, there's actually a wonderful little sequence right near the 
the end of the movie where you get to see uh, a bunch of WAFs do a, a triangulation of a Huftuff uh, triangulation where they list each one's listening to a different Huftuff station and then they get the bearings and they do a quick quick check with basically pulling wires across a map and they figure out oh that's where that squadron is I now know where that guy is uh, it, it, it's 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 fascinating, and so um, what I found was that the, in putting in the circuits with Huftuff, they were also using the Huftuff locations as to put to lay in additional circuits for these RT tenders, which were radio relays. And the and I, I found out, you know, the, all the research they'd done with the the RT tenders to get them to work for, to extend the range. Of, of radio and next thing I know what I've because I've got a map and you can see it on the map in the game of where the the, the circuits went to the Huffington stations to the radio relays to where where the the sector could actually operate its squadrons if I may I'm going to try to share and show what that looks like on the map uh, while, while you continue well when you bring up the map which I hope hopefully will be in a second uh, you should see um, lots of little lines all over the place um, which are the uh, show the yes I think you can see it you can see little dotted lines that run from the sector stations like go to Biggin Hill which is pretty much in the center of the map and you see there are two lines one going out to um, somewhere not far from Rye um, uh, 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 radar station and another one somewhere near South End and those were the, 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 the Huftuff locations for uh, and also the radio relay locations for the RT tenders. And so everything was basically, um, or the, the, all the squadrons that were from Biggin Hill sector could operate within radio range of those three points. And uh, you know, as you notice, I managed to actually get the locations of the other sectors as well. So what you've got is a fairly accurate map of, of how the um, squadrons could operate and extend their range. So here's some, some original some original research in game form and just want to say if you're if uh, folks are watching this who don't play burning blue and it looks like it's very complicated um, uh, spaghetti and so forth but it's actually quite easy to use the symbology for these radio relay stations because the the the, the scheme of the diamond matches the uh, diamond on each fighter that you might be directing and so it's actually quite uh, practical to play with um, in fact, just, uh, uh, this is actually live action. This is a shot from a game I was playing just this morning with my friend, Tom. Right. Okay. Story. <laughs> it seems, sounds like you've got an awful lot of stuff up and I can't see much in the way of raids right now. This seems to be most right. forming he's, up. uh, he's got some things forming up, uh, over Calais. There's one hostile eight here, just, uh, off the Thames estuary. And I put, um, a number of uh, flights up. I like to use them as a sort of an early warning scout. And this A flight has just managed to tally hostile eight at three hexes distant. And that's a, a good uh, result for me because that was able to determine with their eyeballs that this is just a fry yacht of two uh, groupen of fighters. So I'm going to be able to vector my uh, interceptors out of the way and let those uh, fry yacht guys go on their way with the having determined that there are no bombers in there. Yeah, very fortunate managing to eyeball them at that kind of distance. Yes, it was a it was a nice it was a second try, uh, and it's a nice uh, it was a lovely draw uh, of a of a three right on the card exactly when I needed it. So that was good. So now that's fantastic information for me. I just don't have to worry about them. In fact, 
they're up there to sweep uh, and disrupt my, my wings. And so I'm just going to get my guys out of the way and let them go on their way. This is the, the scenario for the big London raids. So they, they aren't really after strafing airfields. I just need to wait. And I think the larger bomber groups are going to be coming from Calais soon enough. Oh, it's just it a, Lee, it raises a question for me, if you don't mind, about uh, process. Sure. I noted that uh, it's much easier for the Fryok to form up than the bomber-associated raids. Mm -hmm. uh, and so a lot of times, right, with the same launch times, and that's probably what happened to Tom. Maybe it isn't, but, but you know, he, he put together raids that were supposed to leave at about the same time, but the bomber raids didn't form up, and so the Fryok takes off ahead. What, or, uh, or, or he wants those Fryoks to... to to, you know, to jump my wings and break them up before the bombers even get there. And so they're out sweeping ahead. Agree, agree. But uh, I was just curious as to what the, what the history is behind the Fryox ability to form up so much quicker than the bomber groups. Well, it's, just, it's quite simply, they were just much more flexible uh, with regards to formations. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, they... Uh, they had a higher climb rate. Um, they, uh, you know, were, were an awful lot more flexible. Um, the bombers were very much intent on on creating these. Uh, I've forgotten the name of the formations that they use now, but uh, uh, you know, uh, forming. I think Keta. I think it was uh, these these V formations that they would fly. Uh, fly. And um, yeah, it just took just takes longer for for the bombers to do everything. Um, uh, and, and the fighters, it was just a you know, lot easier for them. Right. So, I mean, I, I think talking about, I mean, talking about the radio for a moment, I think really what I, I, I'm trying to get at was that the way I was approaching this in terms of the design was I was f discovering problems that were really to do with the command and control side. Um, and so, you know, the radio is one illustration of that. I mean, the other problem is that of well, why don't I send up all my fighters every single time? Um, and of, of course, when you actually start looking at the, the historical record, and I, I did actually use the, the Air Historical Branch record of the battle as one of my main references, it became very clear that the, the, the RAF didn't send up um, everything all the time. In fact, you know, the, the big battles of 15th uh, September 1940 was a, a, a rarity uh, in that, you know, they, they just launched everything. Um, but partly that was because they they knew the raid was big. They knew where it was going. They knew that they had enough time to form up everything and send every, everything out there. And so that, so they did that. But it's also clear that there was a lot of uncertainty involved in earlier phases of the battle when you know raids were smaller. They were of shallower penetration. You weren't sure exactly where they were going. It was it was a lot harder to. Um, send things up and not retain some level of reserve and actually there is a design problem here in the game that i never solved which is that the game in many ways covers a very small snapshot period in time and in some ways that means that the the, the uh, there's an uncertainty factor that the players don't have that the real life um fighter controllers did have in the real life fighter controls were sitting there and going like, well, you know, this is, this is, you know, this, this is a whole day of, of action I'm looking at. I've got to be cautious in terms of the amount of resources I throw at a particular raid because I need to retain a reserve. 
and uh, you know against anything that might follow on and I don't know when that will follow on or it could be soon or it could be later or, 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 or this that this that and the other whereas in the game the game is kind of a little bit artificial and in the sense that it creates this little snapshot in time and you know that you haven't got to sit there for a, playing a whole day's worth of raiding you are playing you know at best a couple of hours worth and so everything is a little bit more condensed. And so I had to add in kind of, again, this is one of those areas where I was both sort of a, a coward and I was kind of defeated by the problem, um, kind of artificial limits on how much the um, RAF could respond with to, to, to raids. Now, those are kind of quite soft limits, but essentially they are limits on the number of squadrons you can scramble and anything over that scramble, you start taking victory point penalties. And it's, it's a bit mushy. It kind of is okay in the sense it gives you a bit of the historical context. You know, you've got the early phases of the battle, like uh, around the week around Adlatag, where, um, you know, the, the, the British didn't really, the RF didn't really respond in very, very large numbers to, to many of the raids. And then you've got the later phases of the battle when, yeah, they'll just launch everything. So, uh, you know, I, I have to say my player experience with that is it, that that response level penalty for the RF player, I find works on me very well. That is, is that it's a very tense decision as to RAF. Do I scramble more now? And if so, you know, who and, 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 and where do I send them at the outset? Because as you say, you have, you have an intelligence picture, but you know it's in, incomplete. And the, the chits, the raid chits that you mentioned earlier, they can generate in a given scenario, it can be a pretty small wave coming at you or it can be a, a, a big fat one. And so it is very hard to know, especially as a player is not studying or shouldn't study the list, the historical list of raids for any scenario, kind of spoils the, 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 the fun of it, the uncertainty. So to estimate what is that proper response level is the RAF. I mean, I don't know how you found it, Harold, but I always find it excruciatingly difficult, very challenging and therefore exciting. Well, in which case I, I, I succeeded and I'm a genius. That's wonderful. Um, I, I do feel sometimes that I failed and that I never found an elegant solution to, to that particular problem. I mean, I suppose the elegant solution would have been you play a whole day's worth of raiding, but that would be nightmarish in a game that's got five minute long turns. Well, I think, you know, these, these are such massive abstractions. You have to forgive yourself for not being perfect, but, but I agree with Volko and it's, and, and uh, you know, I, I don't, after the games, Volko and I talk a little bit about what drives the, uh, those scramble limits and uh, you know, number of fighters, uh, depth of the raids, those things seem to drive it. But frankly, during the game, I'm asking myself, can I damage a raid? Can I, can I do something worthwhile when I launch this? Mm -hmm. And uh, if I can, I, I consider it. And if I can't, I, I don't. And I think that's the decision that was made at the time, or I would suspect was. And I've seen the full gamut from RAF, you know, pretty large underreactions to, to because of the, that desire that you've built in to maintain a reserve. I mean, it's a reserve for not the game you're playing, it's, it's in the future, um, but simulating that desire for reserve. And I've seen, I've seen massive overreactions where the RAF, you know, does, does some substantial damage to the, to the Luftwaffe raids, but has committed so much of its force that it's presumably then wrong-footed for the next wave coming in later in the day. 
Oh, yes, that, well, in which case, that's good. As I say, it's done, it, done its job as a rule. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of, uh, there was a lot of other things that I was sort of trying to get to grips with in this particular design. Um, I mean, un, you know, the forces are a lot less differentiated than they were in downtown, where obviously downtown you had a lot of different things with different roles. I mean, here, here there were fewer roles. You know, you had, had the bombers, the big wandering monsters trolling across uh, southern England. Um, and then really it came down to, you know, what the, what the fighters were doing, you know, how much of the fighters were sweeping, how much were, were escorting. Um, one of the interesting questions that I ran into was that of wings. Um, there's a lot of writing on, in, in, on the Battle of Britain about, um, about wings, and particularly the big wing, um, which was is a reference to the 12 group Duxford wing. Uh, led by Douglas Bader, which uh, uh, liked to go off on its own little little mission and um, has created a lot of controversy over the years. Um, uh, interestingly, my friend John did fly one of those big wings and he thought the whole thing was just a, it was just a, a, a worthless as far as he was concerned. He wasn't, wasn't very impressed by the whole they, business. Uh, they've not done very much for me as an RAF player in the Burning Blue, I have to say. The interesting thing is that um, when you start looking at the wings, um, I think uh, I think a, a number of things came come th through. Um, and again, these were things I don't think they get talked about very much in the historical narratives, or they they get talked about in such partisan terms because the whole big wing issue is be, it has is, has for some writers become a very partisan issue, you know, pro dowding or anti dowding or or what, whatever. Um, there's been some quite heated discussion uh, in, in the uh, in the histories uh, about it. Um, that it kind of obscures what the, the why there was a need for wings. Because I think air warfare is like any other kind of warfare, in that um, victory tends to go to the big battalions. And when you start looking at how the bombers and the um, the uh, and their escorts uh, interacted with um, interceptors coming at them, uh, it's very clear that the kind of the penny packets approach that was followed for much of the Battle of Britain was not hugely successful for the British. Um, Largely, the escorts were able to fend off the fighters. Now, I, I've really tried very hard to do an analysis and divine what those numbers are, and I have never been successful. There's just not enough detail in uh, you know, either the AHB narratives or any of the other sources to really get a sense of, of, of the exact numbers. Um, I've generally, what I've tried to do is just, what I tried to do is, take engagements and measure how how many of those engagements the bombers a bomber was lost uh, to see how many times the fighters actually got through to the bombers um and i i've not really come up with a definitive number i think it's probably somewhere between i don't know 25 percent and maybe 40 percent of um uh uh, uh of the time, um, the uh, fighters were never able to get through to the bombers. And that's actually quite big numbers, if you think about it. 
Uh, that's quite a lot of times when when the, the fighters were just just fended off interceptors. The now there does seem to be an exception when it comes to the big wing. Um, there are a number of books on on the big wing. There's a particularly good one by Dilip Sarka who's written a number of books on the subject, where he looks at almost every every um, big wing sortie in in some detail. Um, and the big, it didn't help that the big wing was prone to overclaiming. Now, uh, Douglas Bader, I know a couple of people who ran into Douglas Bader, and my picture of him is he's something of a of a, of a, a genial shit of a man. Um, I think him and Galland got on very well together post-war for a good reason. I think they were birds of a feather. Uh, but yes, he seems to have been a, a you know, quite unpleasant man personally, except for those occasions when he he, he wanted to be, uh, be wanted to charm people. Um, but uh, and so his big wing was prone for enormous overclaiming. Uh, so getting data on this is is very difficult. However, it does seem to be the case that on those very few occasions. We haven't got many data points on this, but very few occasions that the big wing came into contact with formations of bombers they got through to the bombers which suggests that again that you know that old that old law about you know victory going to the big battalions shows that that numbers do have a worth even in air, air fighting and that if you throw enough fighters at a bomber formation then some of them are going to get past the escort so i just want to um give a, a, a distinction that's in the game for the viewers in case they're not familiar with with it and that is the big wing you're talking about is three or maybe five squadrons even all to all together yeah. in from the north. Um, and that's distinct from the wings that you get to form earlier on, uh, which are the, typically of two squadrons together. And so you've got a range of uh, battalions, as you put it, all the way from half a, half a squadron, about six aircraft, I guess, as a flight. Yep. A squadron is your kind of main basic unit, your basic maneuver unit. Um, squadrons formed into two squadron wings that also have that advantage of fending off the escorts so that one of those two squadrons can get in. And then and then the larger wings working up from, from that all the way up to possibly potentially five five squadrons all at once. And I guess I found that the first three levels, they they each have their 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 advantages. That is the flights very efficient, small like little scout can you know, put eyeballs on a on a enemy raid just as effectively as a squadron can, but only as a half the commitment, or it can be spread to two different parts of the coast. Mm -hmm. The squadron is a kind of a, a main maneuver unit that's um, going to be fine, uh, certainly against either a lightly defended or already undefended bomber target, and then the wings to try to crack these big, you know, the two squadron wings to try to crack the big, um, the big uh, escorted raids. Now, historically, there was a there was an interesting dynamic going a lot going on here, which is that the um, the wings had been proposed, uh, you know, I think relatively early in the battle um, to as a solution to taking on the big bomber formations. But where a lot of the controversy lies is that at the period in which these were being proposed, the depth of penetration of German raids was actually quite shallow. And we're still talking about the raids, essentially the battle of the airfields. Um, when uh, uh, some of those airfields were north of London, but most of the, the key sector airfields that were being hit were actually south of London. Um, and so the amount of time that you had to form up a wing was very, very limited. 
Um, and uh, 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 certainly it was the case that 12 Group, which was even further north, um, forming up at, uh, at Duxford. Duxford's, by the way, not very far from where I live um, here. Uh, I, I'm about half an hour drive from the uh, Duxford Aerodrome. Appropriate. Um, but, yeah, and, and the, the wonderful Imperial War Museum um, uh, uh, exhibit there, which everybody should visit. It's a wonderful, um, wonderful museum. But uh, the, uh, the Duxford wing, um, all right, you can actually almost see here, uh, Duxford's right at the very top end of the map, on, right on the right-hand side of the map here. Uh, yeah, it took a long time to form up. Anything more than two wings took a very long time to form up. Um, sorry, so anything more than two squadrons, I should say, took, took a long time to form up. Uh, you, could largely, you, with two squadrons, you could, in theory, take off two squadrons very, very quickly from a single airfield, get them to form together, and then they could climb together and and and, and reach a reach a, a raid and uh, intercept it. With the with the with the larger formations, it took much much longer. And then by the time that that happened, the raid had come and gone. And this this is what the large a lot of the stink was was about was the fact that um, by the time Barder had got his guys together, um, uh, the, uh, the the raid had come and gone. And then Barder would then promptly go scaring off across um, uh, 11 group, just sending his guys south on a chase to try and catch up with, uh, with departing raiders, um, just causing consternation everywhere because of course he wasn't on the same radio circuit as, uh, as 11 group. And uh, you know, he was just blundering around all over the place, uh, uh, you know, ca causing, causing havoc. Um, however, you get to the fourth phase of the battle so, you know, 7th September onwards, and then you have this, like, there's only a handful of them, but these really, really super big raids appear, uh, with the Germans deciding, right, we're going to go for London. And they're not necessarily hitting the city of London. They are genuinely trying to hit economic targets, which is to say the docks. But, of course, you know, um, they, uh, the, the, their weapon is somewhat indiscriminate that, that they are using. But uh, they have this, they're basically, they're operating at their with very, very large formations at the maximum depth of penetration. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the 12 group big wing becomes viable. It becomes viable because two things are happening. You know, the first thing is the raids are really, well, the raids are really, really huge. So they can be detected quite early on and preparations can be made. And secondly, they're, 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 they're greatest depth of penetration. And that's enough for the big wing to become actually quite feasible. And so the, then you have, you know, the, not many, I think it's only like about three or four or five in, notable interceptions where the big wing gets through to the bombers. Um, now, of course, they overclaim, but there's some evidence they got at least something when they, they did so. And, and certainly put the, you know, certainly scared the bejesus out of the, uh, the bomber pilots when they saw these huge formations of uh, hurricanes and spitfires barreling towards them. So um, I think that the, 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 there's something to be said for the big wing, but it has to be said it's in that fourth phase battle context of big formation, big enemy formations, maximum depth of penetration. In almost every other phase of the battle, they were useless. Yeah. Um, and, and, the, certainly, and even a menace, potentially. The, the squadrons uh, early on uh, bear some frustration too, though, as the... You know, my experience using that with the disruption mechanic being the key mechanic as to whether or not you stay in the fight or not. Um, the squadron attacking 
any sort of German uh, formation uh, gets gets to take a punch, but frequently gets that one disruption that sends them home. And and you were talking about about dogfights early on uh, in our conversation, and that generally dogfights are 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 units facing off, making a quick maneuver, getting off a shot, and then going home or pancaking in the context of this game. I, 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 and I guess I'm trying to form a question from that, but that all fits together, right? I mean, that's, that's the history. Um, yeah, I, I, I actually, I mean, ever since the Birds of Prey, I haven't really touched the dogfight game uh, genre. I think there's enormous problems with the dogfight game genre. Birds of Prey um, worked on developing a, uh, you know, high fidelity physics model for flight. And I think it's very, very successful at doing that. Uh, I think the big problem with um, dogfighting is that uh, is simulating situational awareness. It's an enormous issue. Um, as as one Battle of Britain pilot put it to me, you know, he he talked about his own experiences of getting into a dogfight, and he would, you know, chase after some guy, and maybe the guy got away, or maybe the guy he shot the guy down. Um, but then he would look around and suddenly discover that he was in the middle of an empty sky and he didn't know where the enemy was. He didn't know exactly where he was or maybe he had an idea where he was and he just bimbled off home. Uh, and, and I think a, a, a fascinating feature of a lot of air warfare is when you, we start looking at the tactical level, what actually happens is you start with a formation and then very quickly those formations fly apart. Um, and you end up with an, ex, you know, a squadron becomes an expanding bubble of aircraft in which the, its component parts may be having lots of little separate micro battles across an expanding volume of sky. And when those battles are resolved, you know, either decisively or indecisively, um, then there's nothing else really for the people to do but, you know, bugger off home. Um, and you know, maintaining formation coherency is seems to have been quite quite difficult. And I think you know that, that's a factor that I've built both into both downtown and in uh, and in the Burning Blue. Um, you you start with you start with formations, and then as soon as battle commences, those formations disappear, and you don't really get to regroup them at least not in the same way that you could potentially rally a force in, in, uh, in, in a, a land battle. But even then, my, my observation is that it tracks very, very similarly to the, similarly to the way that it works in land battles. Uh, it, you know, it's a similar kind of thing, is that, you know, two, two forces collide and then, um, you know, one or other or both sides rapidly become disordered and then aren't actually good for doing very much for a while. And you know, then either disengage or just you know stay where they are and and you know not do very much. Yeah, certainly very clear to see that analogy in the you know black powder rank and file, you know uh, battalions where every you know you know which each uh, soldier's place is and you can see whether that soldier is there or not because they're in that rank and that file and then you can maneuver them and actually get all those bayonets up to the enemy musket line but if they break apart and the soldiers are able to hide behind a tree or a rock or head for home then it's that that disorder it's pretty much it for the effectiveness of that unit in doing anything yeah. i mean if you've ever done any street fighting and you know and back in my youth i did did uh, you know a little bit of that 
um, you know, you, you know that, that mobs tend to kind of like surge and boil, you know, head towards each other and then they shrink back and then they go back against each other. Uh, and then that goes, goes back and forth for a while. And, but, you know, if, if there's actually a big Donnybrook breaks out, then it all tends to uh, just collapse very quickly and, and disperse. So. I, I like that analogy. I don't understand it as well as Volko does, given that I don't have a lot of experience in it, but. Um, now I could we, we could go on and on about burning bluely, and I think just out of respect for your time, I'd like to, to transition to a couple of, of uh, follow-on uh, questions, and then let you go to bed. Uh, <laughs> it's getting late there, um, you know. So burning blue, um, downtown burning blue, followed by uh, night fighter bomber command, and then a and then a handful of games uh, that you're not listed as designer, but clearly influenced which of course are, uh, uh, let's see, uh, Bloody April, um, Elusive, Victory, Elusive Victory, Red Storm. So how do, how do you yeah. feel about those games and the direction? Um, well, first of all, I, I, I had nothing to do with those games really. Actually, Elusive Victory was, uh, was potentially a project that I was going to do in the early days. Uh, and actually I, I did first pass on map and some counters for, for it. And then it just never went anywhere. I never thought I, I couldn't resolve some of the problems and issues with it. And eventually it's like Terry and I've forgotten somebody else picked it up and, uh, and then ran with that ball and um, you know, you know, good luck to them really. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure the game system was appropriate for that or even for Red Storm. I think there are problems with it. Um, I know Terry had a, a, a thing because I mean Terry was a, is an ex AWACS guy, so you know he knows something about about the subject. But you know his feeling was he wanted to run, he wanted to run um, opposing strikes in the uh, in simultaneously in the same airspace, and I was very very uncomfortable with that. Um, and I think there, I don't think that system does that very well. Um, I would want to redesign the game um, somewhat to try and handle those sorts of situations. But, you know, hey, those guys have, uh, you know, taken the system, you know, twiddled around with it. It seems to be very popular. Um, you know, fair enough. I get, uh, I get nice royalty checks every so often. I get a little cut of those. So uh, it's all good. All the best. Yes. Yeah. I, you know, I play, uh, I played Red Storm most recently a good bit and, uh, and you know, for for different reasons and a different experience, right? It's uh, it's 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 very fiddly, but it's a lot of fun toys, and um, a lot of times that tactical game—that's what we're looking for. The thing is, I I do want to do a um, sort of that kind of central front game. I'm sort of fascinated by the by the subject matter, uh, but again, because I'm a coward, um, I will go and do it at a completely different scale than than, than Red Storm. Um, Again, I, what I want to do is I want to tackle uh, the the uh, operational warfare problem. Uh, now, actually, somebody I, I worked out a way of doing this, and somebody kind of went and an example of parallel development went and, went and did it and beat me to it. And there is a is it NATO something commander? I can't remember. I've got it on my shelf over there. Um, NATO Air Commander at um, yeah NATO Air Commander. I think it's Holland. It's a Hollandspiel game or something like that. But uh, I, I, I've got it, um, and he he basically we you know it's a great example of, of of parallel thinking on the same design problem. He does not resolve it in the, the way that I would. Um, I 
have a slightly different approach um, uh, because I, I would like to design a game that's very much based around um, sortie generation. There's a, a great book by a guy called um, what's his name? Epstein. I can't remember his first name. Um, but he it's it's a book on the Soviet military threat, and it was written during the Cold War, and it in, includes a lot of math and even a computer program, uh, showing his his uh, model of how um, Warsaw Pact air forces um, uh, uh, generated sorties or likely models for the their sortie generation, and he went into some detail about how. But it was essentially the de into some detail about how within the early days of the air battle on the central front, what the, the VVS would essentially shake itself to pieces and uh, would, would um, go from a initial sortie surge to a quite low, steady state of um, operations. That reminds me a little bit of the, um, the air war model within uh, GW's Third World War series. Yes, mm -hmm where you had to assign your aircraft, you know, just in, just in boxes, holding boxes, right? It was, it was not, uh, it was schematic, but uh, they had to then recover after that and be available or not. And it showed how in the beginning, you've got this swarm of Warsaw Pact air, aircraft, and then they, uh, uh, and then they, then NATO, finally their main maintenance takes over and eventually gains, gains uh, equal status. So that was uh, Frank Chadwick, I guess, and then yeah. Lingsley for the first cut at his um, what became Next War Korea, but Crisis Korea cool. elaborated on that, and you see that then happening between uh, the south, uh, the south and its allies, and the north as well on the Korean Peninsula, and uh, same thing in the Next War. And it's a, it was a very engaging part of the game. I always thought because you had to really make some important decisions about. Um, how much of your aircraft to commit to what and uh and then you could see that quality that maintenance quality that logistical edge come come into play oh i i think this is an, this gets the, the core truth of of aviation which is that air forces air forces eat themselves alive very quickly they shake shake themselves apart when they come to do operations you start looking at uh, williamson murray's book on the luftwaffe for example and you find that the various phases of the war, um, the Luftwaffe was taking more casualties from non-combat accidents than it was from uh, combat-related losses. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's fluctuated at various different stages of the war, but there were definitely stages where, where just simply flying, simply doing operations, the business of just, you know, launching and recovering aircraft, you were taking casualties. And so, you know, some of this is just accidents. Some of this is just you know maintenance and your ability, you know, to have a, a service corps with sufficient depth and spares, and fuel and other bits and pieces, um, and installations and basing and blah 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 to sustain operations. Uh, and um, you know, air forces will often begin with. Uh, uh, you know, a, a sortie surge in the very early days, which just, just simply can't sustain. And then, then everything has to kind of like be pulled back to, to a much lower level. But as, as Epstein showed in his book, um, NATO was much far better positioned in this area than, uh, than the VVS and all the other Warsaw Pact air forces were. Um, and it's almost, it's, it's almost comically so in some some regards there's some wonderful stories from from this one uh, uh, I, 
again, I can't, I can't remember the name of the, the title of the book. I, I got it on a shelf and I can't actually see it because I've got the wrong glasses on right now. But anyway, the, um, uh, I mean, there were, there were some wonderful stories of the, the VVS of the 70s and, and 80s coming out, uh, uh, not least of, of which that um, there were an awful, the, one of the problems that the Soviets suffered from was they were very, very, they were very, very big on um, producing a, a lot of um, equipment, a lot of sharp end equipment. You know, they, they liked producing aircraft, but they didn't like necessarily producing lots of aircraft spares. So aircraft spares were always in short supply. Similarly, specialist equipment for maintenance was also, um, they were somewhat parsimonious with, they didn't, ha didn't produce an awful lot of it because uh, they were much more, you know, much more concerned with figures for, you know, what frontline aircraft they had and so on. And so the result was that there was just um, not, enough, not enough spares and there was not enough service equipment. And the spares problem basically um, showed itself in the the high extent of hangar queens that the, the the Soviet Air Force suffered, even in peacetime operations, and um, which of course hangar queens themselves were problematic because not only were you taking an aircraft out of commission to salvage spares from it to cannibalise it for spares, but then what you're having to do is spend additional cycles with your maintenance staff to take the plate think something out of one aircraft and then put it into another aircraft. So that was, there was just all sorts of inefficiencies were starting to be built in. And again, some of this was also because rather like the Luftwaffe in World War II, the, the Soviet VVS even into the 70s and the 80s was seriously undermanned in, in its service corps and, and lacked, lacked um, you know, trained technicians and particularly with a new generation of aircraft with more advanced electronics that were starting to come into service. And so, so another, another aspect that kind of was, was being sort of shown here was the lack of equipment meant that the the Soviets, in an in a attempt to innovate their way out of the around the problem, decided to introduce sort of like almost like a, a an internal market, a sort of a competition system, to encourage regiments to build their own service equipment. And which they did, and there were there was various prizes for it, you know, um, which I'm sure was all paid in um, you know in, in in rubles and vodka and whatever it was that they used, you know, blue jeans. Um, to uh, uh, incentivize people to come up with this stuff. Of course, it's been that every regiment had its own separate service equipment, all of which was non-standard, all of which required non-standard procedures, which meant that um, skills were not transferable from regiment to regiment should um, staff move around. And some of this equipment was by its very nature, because it was improvised, not mobile. And so that made the, the regiment a lot less able to deploy um, forward uh, or, to, or to forward airfields easily without all of its, its um, apparatus that it had built for itself. And, uh, you know, so you know, you, these are kind of like really interesting narratives. And I'm going like, how do I put this into a game? Well, of course, I put it into a game that's about sortie generation. So what if we build a game that's about, that's not about, resolving raids but it's about generating sorties and you've got you have to think about bases okay so you have a basing complex uh, that basing complex has a capacity in terms of the amount of you know maintenance it can do which is to do with you know service staff and equipment and so on but possibly other factors as well such as whether you've got um, you know hardened shelters for your aircraft um, that, that allow it to survive uh, air attack or allow it to survive um, chemical weapon attack 
and then you know these become factors which can be attacked and given fractional values and then the, you know these act as multipliers for the number of sorties you can generate and then you you generate sorties and you're kind of comparing the number of sorties on each side and and, and what what uh, resources you you want out of your sorties to put to particular missions and particular tasks and, and so on I mean, you're acting essentially with the hat of you know the high level air commander who's having to think not in terms of raids but in terms of sorties and where they're going to allocate them into which fronts and to which tasks and so on well lee i'm looking forward to it <laughs> i know you didn't say you're going to do it but uh I, i'm looking forward to it when it happens uh, a moment i have um dozens and dozens of designs which are i mean they're they're actually most of them are on the computer somewhere but they're essentially written on the backs of envelopes um uh, or sketched uh, uh, in some fashion or other and, and partially designed uh, one of these days i think when, once a uh, wing leader is um is done i'm going to uh, I, I may well pick one of these up and get very enthusiastic about it and, and start carrying it through to a, a conclusion i don't know which one of those it will be it now, may be a bit I, random i recall lee you had on the drawing board it is a raid uh, scale falklands game zone red or some such is that still alive uh, not really alive because um, I did a lot of research into it and I really did a lot of number crunching and you know the Falklands is a fascinating campaign um, obviously a little bit of history I lived through and um, you know remember remember very clearly but the air operations the air operations are, are, are quite difficult the we get into this whole business of maintenance debt again. Um, the a problem that the Argentines suffered was that they were operating a, um, you know, a second world air force that was old, that lacked spares. Um, and they were, they really ran into an awful lot of problems very, very quickly. There were squadrons that were operating, uh, particularly some of the naval squadrons that were operating unsafe aircraft. The, um, I think it was the Orions, uh, were withdrawn from, uh, from service partway through the battle for no other reason than they were just too dangerous to fly. There were, there were, uh, Skyhawks, naval Skyhawks being launched, which had, um, uh, unsafe ejection seats in them. Um, and in fact, you know, you get into the points where the pilots rightly were just refusing to fly. Um, and so you, you, you see the sortie rates for um, the, the first days of Operation Sutton and you, you clearly get a spike on the first and second day and that drops off so bloody quickly. Um, so actually, a, a problem I, I always found with that was I did actually do a design. I did, did even do some testing on it, but I had real problems finding where the game was. And I ended up with something that was we talked earlier of experience games and I ended up with something that was an experience game, but I don't think it was a particularly good experience. It wasn't a particularly enjoyable experience. And so I kind of put it down and I've not never really gone back to it. Um, uh, again, yeah. It, it, where, where do you find the game in that particular situation? It, it, it looks exciting. There's a lot of things going on, uh, but at the same time, actually the decision points you've got to make, as a player and the things that you have control over are, are rather slight and it makes it difficult to make it as anything more than all oh, right here's an experience of what 
happened or could happen. It, it, it's interesting how hard it is just looking at the scene of an exciting story to, to understand those questions of what the decision points are until you actually design the game or the model, right? And then, you know, and push it around a little bit. It just tells you, tells you how much it tells us to try to design a game. And the worst thing about it, of course, is you go and do that and you, you invest a lot of time and effort in doing that. And then you realize you might have made some, some bad calls there. I mean, I, I look back at some of my earlier games and Downtown is one of them. Uh, to a lesser extent, Burning Blue, but even there as well. And I go, you know, did I make the right calls on the, on the design there? Is that really a good and faithful treatment? Could I do better? Um, and, uh, you know, the, the answer is, is often yes. Well, the, the, the designers always see the warts. That's, that's the law. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, I, I, uh, I, I love my current baby and, um, you know, the, 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 my previous, uh, previous one is now the redheaded stepchild that I abuse. <laughs> and, and I'll close with uh, perfection is the enemy of the good. But Lee, thanks so much for taking the time. It was a real pleasure talking to you and love the games. And uh, we've had just such a great time this summer playing Burning Blue and appreciate that experience. So thank you. Uh, no, no problem at all. I, I think I did see some of your Twitter exchanges and uh, you're clearly having a lot of fun. It, it's nice. It's genuinely gratifying to go, oh, actually, that game I made all those years ago is a little bit shit. Uh, oh, people quite like it. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> it's good. Absolutely. It well, thank you for taking the time. Vol Volko, thanks for joining us. It was good fun uh, doing this. Great. This was a blast. All right. There we go. Okay, guys, you take care then. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. All right, Lee, we're finished. Uh, mm -hmm. Get some sleep, but thank you. That was a that was a real treat for me, and I'm sure Volko as well. Thanks for spending. Absolutely, that's great. Uh, I, I hope so. Sorry, I think I rambled a lot there. I I, I went off on on all no, sorts I, of tangents. I think I think we've got your uh, your eternal now. We have a document uh, to, for posterity. It's fantastic. Okay. Well, thanks again, guys. It was a uh, it was a treat. Um, you know, there's nothing like I like more than um, you know spending a couple of hours listening to myself talk. So uh, yeah. <laughs> well, if you'd, we can get together again if you'd like some time listening to Volco talk because we can. <laughs> arrange that. Oh, I can I can abuse him soundly about his games. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's not necessary. That's right. <laughs> As a matter of fact, that's already been done. So, uh, but thanks, Lee. Have a good evening. We enjoyed meeting you. Okay, you take care then. Bye-bye. Right. Good night. Bye-bye. Thanks, Harold. Awesome. Thanks, Volko. Appreciate you taking the time. And that's it for part two. Be sure to take a look on my YouTube channel, Harold Buchanan, and watch for more videos to come. I'll also try to get you an audio version for those of you who enjoy the podcast. And as always, I'd like to fly like an eagle to the sea.